I did a project in a really, you know, nice area of uh, Los Angeles and it was a build and it was an apartment build and, you know, kind of adjacent to, you know, West Hollywood, Beverly Hills. And we put a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, we put a public park, you know, we got some permitting concessions from the city, put a public park there. Everything was nice. Newspapers and the new, the periodicals in the area came by and everybody was kind of cheers and uh, celebrating the fact that this was a phenomenal build, but we were losing money. We were losing money. So I was building to the aesthetic of the, of this area. I was building to the, you know, trying to kind of chase the appreciation that could come versus staying in my lane of working class, affordable, dignified housing. And I, I lost money. You know, what can I say? I was out of my, I was out of my element. As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey everybody, welcome to Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and we have the pleasure, the honor of having Yusuf Alexander with me today. How are things out in Cali, man? Things are great. Nice and sunny, of course, but you know, we got a little little nippiness going on. I'm a warm-blooded animal, so you know that the little bit of cold gets me. Go on, man. It was 25 degrees today. I ran in in shorts, so we're doing okay out here in Carolina. So you don't do a lot of interviews. And so the listeners may not have heard about your massive and amazing career. So do me a favor and give the listeners a little bit about your background and how you how long you've been in multifamily and kind of what you guys have done. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Jerome. And I love the Carolinas, especially North Carolina. It's kind of near and dear to my heart. I actually uh, did some deals there in the early, mid, mid 2000s. And Learned a lot in that that market, that submarket, the research Triangle Park. And then, you know, I've done some other things in the Southeast. So again, thanks for having me. And yeah, I'll give you the short version because uh sometimes, you know, the, the long version, you know, I don't want you to get misty eyed. You're a little younger than me. You're gonna, you know, you might not relate to all the things that I, I bring up. But basically, I'm born in Los Angeles and during the, you know, grew up in the 80s in South Central Los Angeles. So if you can imagine the pop culture, nostalgia, good, bad, and in between in that area, that's kind of where, where my upbringing was. And it was normal to me because that was just my surroundings. So all that being said, I'm, I was a fantastic, you know, member of the public school system and, and, and you know, performed my way into a, a public, a great public university, UCLA, <laughs> became a Bruin there and majored in economics. And I started teaching actually math and science at a middle school. I'm bringing it way back to the beginning. But anyway, in the midst of teaching math and science, I met a mentor. I met a, I met a guy that knew how to reposition, buy and sell real estate. And it fortunately was in the areas that where I grew up. So it was kind of like a, a whole new way to reframe, you know, a place that I spent all of my formative years. Long story short, 500 transactions later, I, I, I pretty much knew how to I, I figured that out. And so I was in my early 20s and then I became, you know, kind of a 
serial entrepreneur. I bought a couple of businesses. I started to travel all over the world. I started a, a small, you know, voiceover IP company that had connections in West Africa and, and, and Europe. And uh, but I was bouncing back with some some things here back in Los Angeles. The market changed. Late '90s happened. The 2000 bubble. Uh, I kind of reformulated my real estate approach, and I started to expand and look for uh, instead of you know one to four units, I started to look for smaller smaller buildings, and then um, looked into Arizona. Kind of little pond jumping. I went pond hopping right from California to Arizona, and then I went to the Midwest, and then I went to the Carolinas, and then I ended up in the Southeast, mainly Georgia. So that's a very kind of skeleton projection and connect the dots of, of, of what's going on. But, you know, we can unpack any of, the, any of those markets and any of those time periods and the cycles, if you like. So were you chasing emerging markets or what led you to the different spaces that you were investing in? Well, the first market in Arizona, what led me was I wanted to um, learn how to scale my operation. I mean, because I would make some pretty aggressive returns in the one to four unit in the single family market. But what I found was that my efforts were not, you know, it was kind of, it was like a diminishing marginal returns. You know, I I had a a construction outfit. I had a leasing outfit. I had had all these different factions of the operation and it was profitable, very profitable, but it just, it seemed like it kind of hit a, you know, hit a point where it plateaued and it was, it wasn't scalable. So then that's what got me, thinking about multifamily. And thankfully, a lot of the skill sets that I learned in the single family space repositioning that were transferable to the multifamily. So (laughs) he said 500 transactions later. Did every transaction go as you planned? Oh, man, of course not. I mean, you know, here's one thing that I can say to the listeners. I've had some formal education, but I've also had this education called the school of hard knocks. And I've paid many, 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 many times over from mistakes that have been made, you know, from just different areas. As I look back now, added value. I mean, one of the things that I have been able to master in my career, not only sourcing deals, negotiating deals, acquiring deals, but I also have mastered how to add value and really stay in a vein of an added value to specifically optimize assets. Now I've made mistakes, you know, to your question, what value is in the single family market space. This is kind of sacrilegious when someone says paint and carpet, or let me, this is an eyewash. Let me just kind of do that. that. That's not added value to me. Added value to me is optimizing a living space in an updated fashion to, to provide a dignified living environment. So with that thesis, I put in a value-added business plan to every project that I'm involved in. Whoa. All right. So everybody's looking for the kind of cosmetic flip or the cosmetic apartment reposition project. And you're saying we're updating the living space. You got to give me that definition again, because I've never heard something so precise. Well, here's what it is. I'm going to give you the backstory and then I'm going to flip back over to the definition. The backstory is this. I grew up in working class housing. I grew up in with a single mother with three children living in a working class environment. So in my bones, I would I understand what that space can be and what it can't be or what, you know, both sides of the spectrum. So as a professional working in multifamily real estate, that 
you know, is clocked into my understanding of how things can be. Now, I also live in the very well-to-do areas in, in the United States. So I can see the difference and I can see what should happen and what doesn't happen. Now, the definition, I don't even know if you want to call it a definition, this is just the way I operate. You know, the formula is to create an updated living space, a dignified living space, a space where a millennial, a Gen X, a Gen Z takes pride in. They can bring their girlfriend home or they can raise to start their family or they can be, you know, transitioning from career to career. It's just a dignified space to live. And actually, post-COVID, I guess we're not really post-COVID, but during the pandemic, when a living space became a layered occupational location, work, daycare, home, it better have a label of dignified and prideful as well because you're spending so much time there. Love it. I love it. So I I know the investors are out there like, man, that sounds like a great way to over-improve a property, right? Spending too much to make it dignified or whatever else. What, What do you say to the folks who are struggling between, you know, investing enough to say that they did a value add and, you know, we, we over-improved for the neighborhood because I think that's a mistake where a lot of people struggle. Well, that's probably, uh, Jerome, the difference between a, an amateur and a professional. An amateur may use words like over-repair a place or, I don't know, I, I don't even look, that doesn't even make, I don't, that doesn't even make sense to me. I wouldn't, I, I, why would I over-repair a place or put too much money into a place? I, dignify has nothing to do with the dollar value. And, you know, the funny thing about it is this. If you really look at it, and I've, you know, I have a, a large amount of transactions to reference personally. If I really look at what costs money to make something dignified, it's so incremental that it doesn't, it's not even, it's not even worth talking about. You have, you know, you have an updated living space could mean more electrical sockets for all the devices that people use. An updated living space could mean a layout change to accommodate, you know, live work versus just work or just live. So, I mean, I, you know, when someone says, oh, I don't know what they're talking about. That's not the way that I conduct my career. So, hey, everybody has their own way. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Okay. And, but do you agree that your approach is a little counter popular culture? Well, here's what happens in business. Business people are dime a dozen. Good ones are hard to find. So a lot of businesses take shortcut, make, you know, I don't, you know, the, the shortcuts are there, whether it be the paint they use for the toy that they're going to sell to a child or the paint that they use, you know, to punch and reposition a rental unit. People cut corners, people do things, but usually what doesn't come out in the wash comes out in the rent. That's what one of my um, mentors used to say. So at some point, someone's going to get sick from the paint that the child is, you know, there's only child's toy or someone's going to complain about the, you know, lackluster kind of approach to this rental unit and their competitors are going to do something different. And they're going to go over there and, and, and consume that product. A lot of people want to be profitable multifamily operators, but lack the knowledge, deal flow, experience and capital to be successful. They often try to overcome these challenges out of order, slowing or eliminating their ability to get their next deal done. We've developed a framework that allows them to gain the knowledge they need to find profitable deals. When they do, they create the time and location freedom, as well as the generational wealth they desire for their family. 
the Myers methods of multifamily investing have proved to be the fastest way to establish credibility and properly grow an apartment portfolio. If you want to know more about our four-step process, jump over to MyersMethods.com to get our free four-step guide to getting into multifamily investing. Let's get back to the episode. Okay, I got it. So, you know, over 500 transactions, you said everything that go is planned. If you had to pick one lesson that you learned through the School of Hard Knocks that you would want our listeners to a mistake, a misstep that you would never want them to make. Do you have a kind of a storyline on how you got into the deal and what that, what happened? I would probably need to be deal specific because I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, that, you know um, let's see in the multifamily space, what you definitely, okay. Here's something that, that resonates with me. I like to stay where my expertise, where my talents are. So, I don't do luxury high-end homes. You know, my homes, I've done that before, but my talents, and like you, like I, uh, we talked about earlier, and my experience is in a working class, you know, set of living. So what I've been able to do is I've been able to make gains and I've been able to improve that area. Now, when I stepped out of that area, that has been a mistake. So I've stepped out of that area doing, you know, primarily subsidized housing. And I've stepped out of that area doing primarily luxury homes. And I I had, I did a project in a really, you know, nice area of uh, Los Angeles and it was a build and it was an apartment build and, you know, kind of adjacent to, you know, West Hollywood, Beverly Hills. And we put a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, We put a public park, you know, we got some permitting concessions from the city put a public park there. Everything was nice. Newspapers and the new, the periodicals in the area came by and everybody was kind of cheers and uh, celebrating the fact that this was a phenomenal build, but we were losing money. We were losing money. So I was building to the aesthetic of the, of this area. I was building to the, to, you know, trying to kind of chase the appreciation that could come versus staying in my lane of working class, affordable, dignified housing. And I, I lost money. You know, what can I say? I was out of my, I was out of my element. So was that, and I I don't know if you syndicate or you just do joint ventures, but when do you decide to cut bait on a deal like that? Right. Because you're in, you're building it. You got money expended. How do you know, Hey, I'm not going to recover. I'm going to get out of this thing and I'll just take the haircut. Well, you're monitoring, you know, you're doing, reviews and reports and analytics during the time. It's a two and a half year, almost three year project. So, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing things happen and the market is changing while things are happening, you know, materials, labor, interest rates pretty much are staying the same, but, but yeah, th- things are changing. There's variables that are changing and you got to mitigate your risk by, you know, looking at what you have and looking at, you know, that small window, six, eight, 12 months that's in front of you. Now, once that window starts to get close to the margins, then yeah, you better make a decision. You could pay, you know, your invest, if you're syndicating, you can pay folks back or you could say, Hey, you know what? Let's uh, cut bait and move on to another deal. So it depends on what's going on. This was a, a partnership of very close knit professionals and it's three, it was three of us and, you know, we figured it out. Yeah. And so as part of the reason why I love the joint venture model, especially when you're going to try something you haven't done before, 
just because there's more understanding when you have relationships and they understand that your level of expertise as well as the risk associated with it. So if something doesn't go to plan, having everybody involved in the decision-making and the assumptions, I think is pretty important. Is that what your experience was or was it something? Yeah, I mean, here's what happens, you know, in any relationship, you know, the transaction should be the forefront or it should be the, the transaction. You should look to the transaction for the greater good. So if, if the transaction is making sense or not making sense, then the partnership should follow versus the individual partners in the group, the transaction would follow their sentiment. That's counterproductive. So you're saying let the numbers dictate your business decision. Let the numbers dictate, let the market dictate, let the transaction dictate the direction of the group. Okay. Of the syndication of the partnership. Got it. And do you have some form of a criteria when you get into projects now that say, hey, if we don't hit this return, we're going to sell regardless of what the discount is? Or like, how do you make sure that you don't get in a place where you lose money on your deals at this point? Because, I mean, there's going to be some losers, but when you find out you got a loser, I know getting out as, as fast as possible is pretty important. Well, here's what happens in this point of my career. First of all, the money is made in my projects on the buy. It's not made on the sale because I have now, you know, in the third decade of doing what I'm doing, I'm not going to participate in something that's going to, I wouldn't say lose money, but it's it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to, it's not going it, to, the chances of it being a loser is very slim. And the reason is because the drivers, the impact points of that particular project are already in place. The replacement value is there. The you know cost per door is there. The debt ratio is there. You know The things are in place and it's going to be an income producing property on day one. So the added value part of it, now we can discuss how we're going to push that to a forced appreciation or whatever we decide to do with the business plan. But the only thing that on our side is, I mean, the only thing against us would be some catastrophic market or something to that extent, but we're going to get into a deal that produces income. And you're seeing some deals trade because you're still active right now. Mm-hmm. What do you, I look at some of the deals and I'm wondering how people are actually going to make money. And I don't know if I'm just being overly conservative or not, but what do you, what do you think about the current market conditions as it relates to multifamily and kind of price per doors and rent ratios? Well, there's still sub-markets, different markets around the U.S. that have potential for growth. So I back things up. If I were doing you know, research, I would just see you know, where the, the demographics, where the movement of the different areas are, whether it be the Carolinas or the Southeast or the Midwest or the Southwest or the coastal city. So there's different movements around, there's different movement around those markets. And then you would take the criteria that you have for getting into projects and place it over the market that you want to participate in. You know, the market in Killeen, Texas is different than the market in Minot, North Dakota. Those are tertiary markets. They're the sub-markets of the, the metros. So I listen to a lot of young, you know, entrepreneurs and professionals, and they throw around a lot of kind of generalizations. But 
that doesn't have anything to do with the last deal that I bought from a guy that's 90 years old. It just doesn't want to. The reasons for him selling the property to me are different than the what someone's looking at on CoStar. Yeah. <laughs> Being direct to seller is the game right now. And the stuff that's actively marketed, I think in a lot of ways is, is really difficult to make money, especially with your criteria, making money on day one. Two last questions for you before we jump off the call. The first one is, some people will say you can't make money on a day one in a value add project. What do you say? I mean, I wouldn't be on this call 27 years, 20, let's see, 26 years later from the first day that I bought a piece of real estate. So, I, I mean, I, I just, I don't understand. You know, some people say there's no good schools out there and then you get someone to go into a, a great school and they have a phenomenal career. Someone says there's no good, kids are all lost causes. And then you have some kid that, does something great and has a great impact on their in their community. So I don't know what to say to people that don't know how to make money. I really don't. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the final question is what words of wisdom do you have for the listeners other than make money on your real estate deals? <laughs> well, this is a great time. I'm excited about the market. I'm excited about the new uh, generation of entrepreneurs that are coming up. I'm excited about the connectivity of our space. I'm very excited about real estate, multifamily real estate, just as I was a couple of decades ago. I'm actually even more excited. I'm just, you know, a little bit slower to the, with my, my wits about me as I, than I was a few, few decades ago, but I'm very excited. And my words of wisdom is just, you know, invest in yourself Invest in yourself. Also be in a real space versus the kind of the virtual, you know, like I have to get this done. So I, I, I talk to kids. I shouldn't say kids. I talk to young entrepreneurs sometimes and, you know, they'll, they'll listen to some program online and then they'll grab, you know, some certification and then they'll go visit some conferences and then they're this entrepreneur. No, that you got to be, you know, let's just be real. You know, real is knowing the fundamental pillars of how to formulate a profitable real estate transaction and how to do that. And if you get those fundamental areas mastered, you'll be fine. Man, spoken like a true operator and veteran of the game. Yusuf, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Multifamily Missteps. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jerome. Have a great day. You too. To the listeners, the pack's with you. We'll talk soon. You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor, give us a five-star rating, give us a review, and share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.